Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about the history of Faber and Faber. I'm joined by Toby Faber, who's the grandson of the firm's founder, Geoffrey Faber, and his book is called Faber and Faber, The Untold Story. And we don't, well, we don't play favourites with publishers in The Spectator's Books pages, but the history of Faber has a definite place in everyone's heart. There's a quoted in Toby's book, is a 1934 letter from T.S. Eliot to Ezra Pound, where he says, if you were the sort of guy whatever admitted anything, you would admit that Faber and Faber are good publishers. Which seems a reasonable starting point. Toby, what's the occasion of you putting this book together? The occasion of me putting this book together was essentially overcoming my reluctance to do so. People have talked for a long time about doing a history of Faber and Faber, and we've always resisted it. Uh, because we are publishers at heart and no publisher wants to publish a boring book and corporate histories have a reputation for being very boring. A deserved reputation, I should say. Well, but this one... <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that I will crack that reputation. Well, this one is not is not boring, but you've done it differently. I've right? done it differently because I suddenly realised, essentially, that you could tell the story of Faber and Faber not in my war- words as a historian looking back on the story of Faber and Faber, uh, but instead in the words of the people living it at the time. So using the Faber archive... You've just, for example, quoted an extract from a letter there, using extracts from letters, very tightly drawn, so not complete letters generally, extracts from letters, board memos, uh, diary entries, string them all together to make the narrative out of them, out of the words um, of the people who didn't know that Faber and Faber was going to live until it was 90 and become a leading literary publisher. Yeah, you've basically gone through and picked up the plums, haven't you? (laughs) Well, I've had a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I, uh, and absolutely, there are a lot of plums in that. In that story, but there is also an, a, an underlying story of how come Faber is still going, and so that's the overall plot of the book, I think, uh, because I think that's 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 interesting in itself. I'm, yeah. I'm biased, of course, <laughs> in thinking that, uh, but I think there is a story there for anybody well, who's it's interested a very good in argument history. for nepotism, actually, Faber and Faber, isn't it? There's a kind of nepotism dynasties <laughs> all over. The- well, there are dynasties all over the place, but actually, I think in terms of the Faber family. Uh, you can argue that it's nepotism, but I am the only member of the family to have worked there, essentially apart from my grandfather, oh. so, certainly since his death. We've never seen it as a sort of job creation scheme for members of the Faber family, but it's an argument but for family gonna, ownership, you, absolutely. But you have a couple of Delamares there as well, don't you? Yes, we do have some you know. uh, Delamares, and again, Giles Delamare ran a very successful arts list for a long time uh, when he was at Faber, so... Uh, generally that's worked quite well and actually yes a father and son sales director as well which is slightly more surprising (laughs) yes well most sales directors don't last that long they certainly didn't in the Uh, they didn't in the 1980s (laughs) that's certainly true (laughs) um but let's go back to the beginning you know it wasn't faber and faber to start with was it it was something entirely different and its cash cow was rather than you know it was highbrow poetry (laughs) was the nursing mirror it was indeed it was the scientific press in its uh, early incarnation and uh, the scientific press had been founded by Sir Henry Burdett, who, as far as I can understand it, was essentially a Victorian philanthropist who wanted to professionalise nursing, and as part of his quest to professionalise nursing, he started the Nursing Mirror. Almost, to, I think to his surprise, certainly to his family's surprise, the Nursing Mirror became a huge cash cow uh, because it became the way to advertise to nurses. Uh, so by the early 1920s, it was throwing off large sums of money, certainly in, in those days, and the people, people who by then owned it of which the major shareholders were Mr. and Mrs. Guire, uh, Alcina Guire being a daughter of Sir Henry Burdett, decided it was they should be diversifying away from a reliance on the nursing mirror and moving into more general publishing. And that's when my grandfather got involved to lead the diversification of the scientific press. And he started wanting to publish 
fiction and literary he thought that work a good trade publisher would do that would have a good literary magazine as well uh he persuaded the guires of this uh, there was another shareholder who didn't like that idea who was bought out uh, my grandfather therefore ended up with a small shareholding having been part of the syndicate to buy out the other the other shareholder and the scientific press changed its name to faber and guire my grandfather became chairman his desire to start a literary magazine is what led someone to suggest to him that he should be thinking of what magazine that should be. And actually, there was a good magazine already out there that might serve his purposes. And that was the Criterion. Edited, of course, by... Edited by one T.S. Eliot. <laughs> exactly. And so that is the sequence of events that led my grandfather to T.S. Eliot. And here's the sort of you know, atomic moment of Faber and Faber. But there's a lovely sort of line of comedy in the early things that almost nobody could spell Eliot's name right. And your grandfather, as you, you say, well, I sort of didn't know who he was. There's something in a letter where he says, oh, there's this chap called Mr. Elliot. He's written some poems and wastelands. So the chap who recommends Elliot uh, is a journalist called Charles Wibley. Uh, he recommends Elliot to my grandfather. My, my grandfather gets him to write a letter of recommendation. And Charles Wibley, in his letter of recommendation, which my grandfather is using to show to the Guires to say, no, Elliot's a good chap. And I think what he really liked about Elliot, of course, was that he was a banker and therefore had that business brain that you'd expect, uh, uh, that you need in publishing. Uh, but anyway, he was gathering together testimonials, and Charles Wibley writes his testimonial, which, he, as you say, he entirely misspells wastelands. He puts it as one word, which was something that the Elliot family always hated, and adds an S on the end, but does essentially say this, this is, these are what Elliot's qualities are. And I, I think, and I'm not sure why I think this, unless I've got some vague memory, that at that point, until he met Elliot, my grandfather hadn't really heard of him, suddenly wasn't conscious of him, wasn't moving in those sort of literary circles. He, he had, had a very good academic brain, my grandfather, but he wasn't necessarily a literary man in quite that way. Yeah. And in those early years, you know, it was still the scientific... I mean, one of the things, the things that was surprising to me was that when they said, you know, we're going to expand this publisher, we're going to take on a literary list, we need to move to Russell Square. And the reason for Russell Square, you know, now hallowed in literary history, was actually it was next door to this sort of nursing bookshop. Well, it was all it was very convenient for all the nurses and the hospitals all round about. And it's quite true that that area of London is still full of hospitals. And how good a publisher was Elliot? I think uh, by the end of his life, well... In his middle period, he was a brilliant publisher. There's no doubt about that. I think in common with everybody else who started working at Faber and Guire in those early years, they were all still finding their way. What is interesting is Eliot already had an eye. One of the very early pieces of correspondence in that book is him writing to Scott Fitzgerald saying, I'd love to publish The Great Gatsby. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, The Great Gatsby already had an English publisher, but that clearly shows he, he, was, he was on the good lookout for good things. I thought I the fact that Fitzgerald also misspelled Elliot's name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> While calling him the greatest living poet or something along those lines. But yes, absolutely. Um, uh, my grandfather, by the way, always kindly writes back, spelling Elliot right in all these letters back to the choirs and people like that. They take no notice and carry on misspelling, misspelling the name. And I want you to think character of your grandfather. He seems this kind of Sort of sometimes quite a comic figure because he's sort of always sort of mournfully, you know, trying to hit his mother up for money or, uh, you know, he gets, he's got a very tough mother and he spends his whole time sort of taking himself off for a Turkish bath and, you know, writing in his diary. On that his he's, Turkish bath. <laughs> writing in his diary uh, that he's doomed, you know. Well, of course, my grandfather died before I was born, so I never knew him. So this has been the best way for me to get to know him, going back, reading his letters, reading his diaries. Uh, and yes, I think he did have a streak of gloom to him, which I could see not so much in my father, but I see, did see some of it in my uncle, for example. And he's uncertain of himself. He, however, I think he's he's clever. 
he is a good judge of people. That's what really comes through from the book, I think. And that is what really plays out as the strength for Faber, is in the people he recruits for Faber to work at Faber end up being brilliant publishers. He also seems to be capable of trusting them because he's not sure about his literary judgment, is he? I mean, one of the things he says at various points is, you know, I don't really understand T.S. Eliot's poetry, but I know it's good. I don't really like, you know, I think Juna Barnes, he couldn't see the point of Juna Barnes He couldn't see the point of Juna Barnes. And Eliot and Eliot and the other director were both Frank Morley. Frank Morley were both going, this is the greatest book published. Well, they're they're basically saying, you know, there are only two or three books each decade that are that are yeah. going to be as special as this one. And obviously my grandfather trusts them and, and, and backs them, as indeed he did 30, well, whatever it is, 20 years later, in backing Charles Monteith in one of his first acquisitions, which became Lord of the Flies, uh, again in the teeth of opposition from Faber's sales director at the time. So he was, a good, he was good at recruiting people, and once he'd recruited them, backing their literary taste. And I think he was good at building a team and drawing that team along and, and creating something one might almost say by accident, but with the design at the back of it that he knew his people were good and he knew that they would flourish best outside from in, in, without outside interference. Now, from quite early on, there's a sort of slight paradox, which is that Faber was you know, struggling to make money on its literary work and did, did, well, almost as long as it's existed, but that it was really conscious as well of being a brand, wasn't it? I mean, there's a there's a wonderful letter, I think it's Eliot, who, somebody saying, this is a very good, highly skilled, respectable piece of poetry that deserves to be published anywhere, and we don't want to publish this because we'd rather publish something that failed than something too respectable that would damage our mojo. That is that is Eliot in judging the respectable poetry. I think, I think she's called Mrs Millican. And he says, with the undergraduate eyes of Oxford and Cambridge upon us, uh, we can't take the risk of publishing this sort of safe stuff. And so, yes, absolutely. Basically being kind of a bit punk. (laughs) Well, (laughs) your words, not mine, but absolutely. (laughs) And so, yes, you have that. And speaking to what you were saying earlier on, you see very early on my grandfather in memos to the rest of the board saying, we've got to have this balance between books that are going to make money for us now and books where we feel we are building our reputation, which is the perpetual thing that publishers have to do. They're conscious of it right from the beginning. Most of the books that were making money for Fabers in the 1930s are long since out of print. You know, detective stories, all sorts of ephemera in terms of non-fiction. It's only those sort of those few poets essentially that Eliot is taking on in that period, which were making no money, who are making no money for the firm at the time, or hardly any money for the firm at the time, that end up giving the firm the reputation that it's able to build on, uh, both in terms of its brand name and also in terms of a backlist, of course. So. Yeah. Uh, giving this firm stability. And some of the books that have been bestsellers, you know, the, the strokes of luck. I mean, you know, I think you, you're actually explicit towards the end of the book. You say, this is a story of luck. You know, the famous bit is cats be- becoming the thing that keeps Faber afloat. But I was amazed to discover that in the 1970s, what brought Faber through that, those dreadful economic times was a book about growing your own vegetables. Absolutely. The complete book of self-sufficiency, <laughs> which... As I say that name, I'm sure many people will think, ah, oh, yes, we've got that on our shelves because it sold over a million copies. Well, it and its successor sold over a million copies. An author that Faber had first published in the 1960s, John Seymour, he then came back to the firm in the 1970s, 
said this other firm has suggested that I do this complete book of self-sufficiency. I think it's got another title at the time. That other firm being a packager called Dorling Kindersley. Yeah. Um, who hears who, of them now? <laughs> who at the time were not a publisher. They were just a book packager. So they put the book together and then would sell the finished copies to the publisher. John Seymour said, I like Faber. Essentially, stick with Faber, please. Faber, think, mm, well, all right, then it's going to be a bit expensive, but we might as well have a go. And as you, as you said, it, it is what keeps the firm going in the 1970s because, of course... The 1970s, middle of the 1970s, the good life. The good life means that self-sufficiency is the zeitgeist. And Faber, <laughs> Faber rides that wave. So, and, and another great cash cow later on to, to the mortification of some of the staff who were employees was a sort of spitting image annual. Spitting image annual, as you say, to the mortification of some of the staff uh, we employed. Spitting image and before that, not 1982 and not 1983. And not my clock news. Which are, they're great fun. I mean, I think you can look back at those books now and think what good fun they are. And they still, frankly, work. I I don't have much sympathy for people who are mortified by them at the time. Faber was, as I've already said, back in the 1930s, Faber was making most of its money from uh, things like humour, for example. And there's no, there's never been any harm in doing that. And there's never been any harm, I think, in being brave with the Faber brand as well. Because in the end, if you're doing new and exciting and edgy stuff, that is what's going to support the brand rather than trying to do the same old literary stuff. Yeah, there's also the idea that somebody like Elliot is this, you know, the big Virginia Woolf's image of a man who wears a four-piece suit, you know, that he was <laughs> buttoned up. There's a lot of Elliot's humour in here. Elliot um, is a very funny man. There's no doubt about it. And the only two letters I repeat verbatim from beginning to end in the book are two comic letters by Elliot because I think taking out even one word of them, you're diluting the comedy. Yes, well, well one of them is him responding to a, it's a July the 4th prank that his fellow director spelled him by putting an ad in the newspaper saying that Mr Elliot's doing it. It's a sort of West End dance show. Well, so no, they, his fellow directors had not put the ad in the newspaper. The ad had appeared in the Times, the Times classified section, for Elliot's Club, spelt the same name, way as Elliot. Clearly a different Elliot. Yes. <laughs> but had, had, ta- had taken that and, and, and ridden with it and said, uh, we don't think you should be spending your time on things like this. <laughs> uh, as a mere ordinary director, T.S. Eliot having be- being the only ordinary director, all the other directors being principal directors, essentially because they were full-time. And he was obviously writing poetry as well as, as, well as editing. Eliot replies to that absolutely spoof, spomp- pompous letter with a letter of... Almost unbroken genius, I think. A whole series of points. Every point makes you laugh out loud. But just absolutely deadpan, to the extent that, as you write in the footnote, successive generations of Faber chairman and archivists sort of suppressed this letter because they thought it was a sign of a rift between Elliot and Paul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's fabulous. Yes. I was going to say, has it, has it made it into John Haffenden's selection? It has made it into John Haffenden's selection. And that Good. book, that volume came out, I think it's the most recent volume to have come out, and nobody has yet picked up on it. And I just think it's brilliant. It's a terribly funny <laughs> There's also Old Possum, of course, you know, which comes to be cats. But it's surprising, you know, the, they announced, don't they, at one point, I think in 1928, you know, next we'll have the pollicle dogs and jellicle cats, you know, by autumn. And it's three or four years coming. Elliot, you know, he's going to go on to win the Nobel Prize. He's, you know, invented modernism with the wasteland. <laughs> he's, you know, all these exciting... You know, achievements that he's very conscious of and he's really kind of quite unsure about his ability to write a funny book for children. Yes and he writes a very revealing memo to my grandfather saying I am very uncertain of my ability to write a, to a successful book of this kind uh, because as he says at the end I think 
comic poetry falls very flat indeed. Of course, he, they are brilliant poems. And I, th- I, I do say I don't think my grandfather can be given credit for many of the books on the Faber list directly, but I'm pretty sure he was the person who encouraged Eliot to persist uh, with the book that became Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And frankly, in doing that alone, that's enough, that's enough of a publishing legacy for any publisher to have uh, Old Possum because of its impact on the firm later on, of course. Yeah. Also, from the early years, catalogue copy isn't what it is today, is it? I think it's, it might, might again be true to Barnes. There's a very austere note that says, more or less, this is a book that doesn't really have a plot. It's this collection of gloomy <laughs> things, that gloomy impressions that are made on people and will appeal to anybody utterly stricken by boundless philosophical pessimism. You know, Concerned with la misère au centre de sa misère, I think is what it says. <laughs> Yes, he even has some French. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, is this why they weren't making so much money? Well, you know, uh, what can I say? Uh, Nightwood is still in print. So something must have worked about what, the way it was published. Yes, there was certainly not a concern to write the sort of puff catalogue copy that you might see now. And I, there is something rather refreshing about that, isn't there? I think also Louis McNeese is not concerned with being popular. Just writes his own poetry. I can't quite remember exactly what it says. Yes, exactly. But again, it is it is just saying, look... We're not, exp- we're not trying to tell you this is something it, it isn't, but the fact it's being published by Faber should be enough for you to realise that this is worth reading. It does. I mean, there seems to be a sort of fissure that goes through the story and it concentrates on the appointment of Charles Monteith, you know, as a young fellow from All Souls who, you know, more or less, they, they, they mither about hiring him mostly because his, the warden of All Souls kind of stabs him in the back. Yes, with a, a remarkably bitchy letter, actually. <laughs> extraordinarily <laughs> bitchy letter. But he says, but it, it, he says it's more, he has flair but no taste. Yes. And, and Elliot to... says something like, well, that's probably a good thing for publishing because I think my taste has often you know, damaged us. I, I mean, that, that whole exchange about Charles Monteith, I, I think my grandfather comes out well because he's the person who identifies him and ends up recruiting him. Eliot comes out remarkably well out of that whole exchange, both in terms of his own self-awareness, in terms of the awareness of what Faber and Faber needed in terms of a younger generation and pressing my grandfather to go ahead and make that appointment. And also even being willing to reduce his own salary so that there isn't enough to pay for Charles Monteith to come on board. I mean, it's a really remarkable sequence of letters, that actually. Yes, and I think he says something like, well, Charles Monteith's all right. You know, he's, he might be a bit coarse, but I don't think you'd call him common, which is the important thing. Nobody would call him vulgar. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and as he says, you know, flair is what you need. I have too much taste. <laughs> now, over, over the years, you know, because of course this book goes right up to, and, you know, into the sort of Faber's, I guess you could call it, sort of boom years in the 80s under Matthew Evans. How do you think, how do you think Faber's character has changed as an outfit, is there a golden thread of continuity, or are there different? You know, the, as Private I called it, Faber and Faber, as it became more commercially aware, more interested in publishing pop stuff. Do you think it's changed? so? Though I think, uh, of course, it's changed because you couldn't survive as a firm if you haven't changed. And chain, Faber always wants to be at the cutting edge, I suppose, of literary culture. And in order to do that, you have to move with the, with the cutting edge. But that is also the golden thread that is going through the firm: is a continual commitment to excellence and looking for new good stuff basically and there have certainly been times in the past when Faber has been good at doing that but there have been times when it's not been so good at doing that and part of the story I've been trying to bring out as a way is the the sort of cycle the riding the waves the new appointments coming through every now and then that suddenly revive that commitment to good publishing 
again, it's been lucky in people, hasn't it? I mean, Robert McCrumb comes yes. on as one comes of the essentially immediately a... discovers <laughs> Peter Carey and Kazuo Shigura. I know. It's it, it, I mean, in, a, in the space of a few months, yes. But there was a, a, there's a lovely description of anxiety when Ish first comes into the office. So, and Ish, when I told Ish I was writing this, this book, he said, there's a story you must tell, Toby, in the book. And he describes how he had been invited to this rather stilted drink before lunch, uh, offered a glass of sherry with the rest of the board. And he didn't quite understand at the time what was going on. And it turned out later that Matthew and Robert had been terribly worried about how Charles Monteith would react to Faber taking on Ish because Charles had had some very bad experience with the Japanese in the Second World War. Charles loved Ish's books, as far as I know. Certainly he's written as much on the memos and had never had any problems at all. And one has to suspect, actually, the whole thing was perhaps Matthew having a little bit of a bit of fun with, with Robert and Charles because he was quite a mischievous man at times. How important was the shift into doing paperbacks? I mean, maybe this is slightly publishing inside Beltway thing, but, you know, I remember very strongly, you know, growing up being very conscious of Faber as a sort of paperback house and of Faber's paperbacks being beautiful with those pentagram designs. But at least at first, a lot of the story of this is of Faber selling on, well, selling so, on the paperback I mean, you have rights. To, through, I mean, so Penguin, obviously, the, traditionally in the UK, publishing was a hardback business. So all these firms which started at the same time as Faber, Jonathan Cape, or the older ones like Chatham Windus or Bodley Head, they were all hardback houses. Penguin comes along in the 1930s with this idea that books should be cheap enough to buy at the railway station bookstall. Alan Lane, of course, formerly of the Bodley Head, starts buying paperback rights from hardback publishers, publishers who jumped at, jump at the chance to make a bit more money by selling their paperback rights in this way. And then, this is slightly caricaturing it, but watch as their own hardback sales drop off a cliff as they're replaced by the paperback sales. With the benefit of hindsight, it is amazing to think how long it took the hardback publishers to realise they should be doing their own paperbacks rather than essentially giving away a large chunk of the profits on a new book they were taking the risk on uh, to the paperback publisher. So Faber, in the 1950s, sees that over on the other side of the Atlantic, hardback publishers in the US are starting to do their own paperbacks and thinks, well, perhaps we should have a go at doing this ourselves. So it brings out its first very tentative list towards the end of the 1950s which essentially is a success. One or two failures, but it's a success. And during the rest of the 1960s, they gradually expand their paperback list. But still with uncertainty. So still, for example, having originally done a paperback of Lord of the Flies, and this I don't mention this in the book, they then do go ahead and sell paperback rights in Lord of the Flies to, to Penguin because they don't feel they have the confidence to do... They, they feel they can't sell as many copies of the paperback as Penguin, which might be true, but they're still giving away an awful lot to Penguin by doing that. And of course, the paperback is now back with Faber. So it goes on as a sort of semi-experiment, but gradually expanding in the 60s and 70s. But Faber still thinking of itself as a hardback house, and that being a distinction that absolutely existed then. And in the 1980s, helped by the money from Cats, and also by realising the way things were going. Certainly, Faber Matthew is, Evans is quite kind Matthew, of drove through. Matthew, the Matthew yeah. Evans sees this and drives it through, because of course the structure of the book market is changing, and you have all these chain bookstores arriving, for example who are going to keep backlist on their shelves. What backlist are they going to keep on their shelves? Paperbacks, of course. The form in which the book's backlist is the paperback form. Faber, with its literary heritage, should, of course, be a backlist publisher should have, and therefore needs to publish its own paperbacks. And so it does that in the course of the 1980s, in contrast to all those other names I've already quoted. 
And that's what gives Faber the vital cash flow stability that although you know a lot of the money from cats is wasted it does build its own what's payback list is, is you you mentioned in the book which i hadn't clocked that actually you're getting a, it was a percentage on a percentage of cats that's yes. keeping favorite yes. float because most it's of it goes to percentage. mrs tfc and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah absolutely it's like an so, agent's but now i mean yeah. uh, lots of great quotes from andrew lloyd webber about musicals about cats in particular he says it's it's been a pension fund for all concerned i mean so even faber with its Percentage of a percentage, absolutely. So we ha- so that means we transform ourselves into a house that is mainly a paperback house. I mean, we, it seems very obvious in retrospect that you know you do successfully with the paperbacks and so. On. But a lot of the authors at the time were very anxious about it. I mean, there's a slightly opaque falling out between Robert McCrum and Maggie G in here about a paperback, and Ish needs a lot of reassurance about the paperback. Why yep. was that? Why? Well, because I think there was genuine. Genuinely, people felt at the time, and this is hard to rem- remember, that the skills required to publish a paperback book were different from the skills required to publish a hardback book. So the hardback, bringing out the hardback was all about getting the review coverage and all of that, and, yes, selling it into the bookshops and having that big wave, whereas the paperback, it was a mass market thing, and you needed to be advertising it on the tube stations and have your big sales force that was going to be pushing it out to all the bookshops and piling it out in the bookshops to be on the front tables of the bookshops. And that is... Again, a caricature of the situation, but that is absolutely how people perceived it. And they did not think that a firm, a smallish firm like Faber, could sell paperbacks successfully. What the money from Cats gave us was enough of a cushion to be able to carry on doing it long enough until people said, yes, yes, you can do it. And that is what means Faber is still independent today, essentially, while all those other names aren't. Sure. Uh, there's also sense in the book of torches being passed on. Or as you, know, you cat sort of Elliot giving the young Auden encouragement and bringing him aboard. There's, I think, there are letters from, you know, Heaney's recommending Paul Muldoon to Faber. You see, I mean, is there a sort of apostolic succession, at least within the poetry list, do you think? Uh, (laughs) The laying on of hands. There have been breaks in it, so I can't argue it. It's not like the Pope. Um, So, yes, there is. One of the ways I like to see that is not just in the sense of poet passing on poet or recommending poets it's also in senior editors supporting junior editors so you absolutely see Charles Monteith in his early years really benefiting from having Elliot looking over his shoulder saying I like this and that enables Charles Monteith to take some of the risks he's taking earlier on in his uh, his career in terms of the people he's taking on and then later on right at the end of Charles Monteith's career you see him writing on notes about Ish saying, yes, I really like this, encouraging Robert McCrum to take him on. And that's, that's really when you feel these things are motoring, is when you really have the, the benefit of the, the institutional memory of the firm coming through. I ought to ask, was there anything you had to leave out out of sort of delicacy or politeness? I mean, you, you, you leave aside the anonymous, or you anonymise I anonymise, I remember. A, 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 somebody who complains very pompously about the not the nice well, exactly. news annual. And then I, and then having to, since I've done that, I've worried, because this, that was the sort of firm Faber was at the time, perhaps that memo was a joke as well, and I yeah. haven't recognised it for being a joke. But the Genuinely, no, I don't think so. And I'm probably going to be, remind myself, there's nothing I feel sad that I've left. There's not, I mean, it's not a thing where you get to the present day and you're like, actually, this is still commercially sensitive, or these people are going to be embarrassed if their private correspondence is put out. I mean, is there, essentially, I'm asking, is there an equally juicy volume two that will come well, out in 40 <laughs> years' time? <laughs> the outtakes. <laughs> uh, well, if I was doing one in 40 years' time, coming up to the present day, I'd have to do it from emails, of course, which would be a whole different kettle of fish. No, I mean, I, 
nobody placed any constraints on me. I've taken a pretty robust view that nobody's going to be that worried by or embarrassed by things that were said 30 or 40 years ago. And there are people still alive today, for example, of whom Faber employees, about whom Faber employees have been rude. And I've checked with them and they're entirely happy because it was so long ago and we can all find it quite funny now. So I haven't, no, it's been, it's, 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 it's been a genuinely a joy actually writing this book because I've just, I've managed to write the book I absolutely wanted to write and it's, it's achieved what I wanted it to achieve actually. And I, I should just end by saying that the latest big publication from Faber that I've clocked is the collected lyrics of Sean Ryder. And a lot of people have kind of gone, favourite Faber's publishing the lyrics from Black Grape songs. What do you think T.S. Eliot would have made it? Well, actually, I think he would have liked it. I mean, a, a memo, I mean, which I did cut out from an early draft, not because it was a sensitive or anything like that, uh, was a sales director saying when we, did, when we first published Verse and Worse, uh, which was a collection of humorous verse in the people were worried about what Elliot would think, and Elliot was entirely supportive of publishing Verse and Worse at the time, and I suppose you could say that Sean Ryder is the equivalent, the modern equivalent of Verse and Worse. I think Elliot was much less precious about Faber publishing than people might like to think now. And, of course, what we remember now in terms of the books that are on Faber's backlist now are all the successes. That's not to say that there weren't a lot of other misses as well, and that's not to suggest either that Sean Ryder is a miss. All I'm saying is, as a publisher, you have to have very Catholic and wide tastes and and absolutely back up your taste uh, with strong publishing and still recognise that some of that will hit and some of that will miss. Oh. Well, as I, I mean, Elliot's very good. It's a lovely joke Philip Larkin made at his launch party where he says that Elliot's dedication to Emilio Fabio in the wasteland means it's better with Faber. And I think Elliot would have enjoyed that too, yes. Toby Faber, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.